Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. People in the U.S. like the environment, and they want the government to do more to protect it. A Gallup poll says 61% of Americans want the government to emphasize natural resource and energy conservation over the production of new oil and gas and coal reserves. We're going to talk about how the government did in protecting the environment this year with Howard Lerner. Howard is the executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center here in Chicago. ELPC is the Midwest's leading public interest environmental legal advocacy organization. They have eight offices in the Midwest and Washington, D.C. I counted them on your website. (laughs) We have them. We're glad we have them at this point. Uh, Glad to join you. And this administration, sadly, is good for business. Um, You know, this year in review for the environment, it took a little doing and thinking through. And we're going to do the Great Lakes in the middle of the show. We're going to do climate change towards the end. In this first section, we're going to try to get a handle on the regulatory environment and what has happened. And I think the overarching uh, theme here during this first section is the Trump administration has done what it said it would do, and it wanted to support the oil and the gas and the coal industry and mining industries, extraction industries. And they've been doing everything in their power to do that. They are going about their business just like they said they would. Well, they certainly said that not so much during the election, but after President Trump was elected and when he appointed Scott Pruitt to be EPA administrator and then Andrew Wheeler and Ryan Zinke over at the Department of Interior set aside the ethics issues, which are just horrible in terms of the way they were operating and doing business, they were doing and have been doing the business of the oil industry, the gas industry, and the coal industry. And their job, as they've defined it, has been to get rid of the regulations uh, that protect us in terms of healthier, clean air, safe, clean drinking water, and help limit toxics in our communities. And someone like Ryan Zinke, who just resigned to the Department of the Interior, he opened up almost the entire U.S. coastline to natural gas and oil drilling. His uh, Interior Department also gutted the protections for animals, including the Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Act. Uh, they went at uh, big years and uh, went at the National Monument Parks. They were strictly going about things to open up things for the oil and gas industry, the whole country, the whole coastline. Well, here's the bad news, good news, bad news. The bad news is they did exactly what you've been saying. The good news is we've succeeded in the courts in stopping much of what they've tried to do. They didn't follow the rule of law. They weren't looking to do it. What they did was illegal. The courts have largely reversed most of those. The bad news is, of course, even though we've held the status quo by reversing them in the courts, uh, that status quo does not mean we're cleaning up the air or making for safer water. It doesn't mean that we're making progress on climate change. So the status quo has some problems. What they've done has been stopped in many cases. On the other hand, it's held off healthier, clean air for people. It's held off safe, clean drinking water, and it hasn't enabled us to help reverse climate change problems. I'm the, the things they keep doing keep coming. Just this month, the administration opened up 9 million acres to drilling and mining by stripping away protections for the sage grouse. And this one action opens more land to drilling than any other step the administration's taken. And that, I imagine, will go to the courts, but it, um, it's another one of those things. Well, here, here's a way of looking at it. President Trump won his election by 78,000 votes in three states. 
Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those are three Great Lakes states. Even though he won his election in the Great Lakes states, his actions, his policies, his budgets have amounted to a war on the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is a wildly popular, successful program. Each year, President Trump has zeroed out the budget. Each year, bipartisan House, Senate has reinstated the full $300 million of funding. Uh, you're talking about the sage uh, grouse and other things. There's one national marine sanctuary in the Midwest. There's one freshwater national marine sanctuary. It's the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary in Lake Huron off the Michigan coast. What happened, the Department of Commerce said, we're going to open it up to oil and gas drilling and cut the size by 90%. Both Republicans and Democrats in the Michigan congressional delegation said, what are you doing? Uh, the Environmental Law and Policy Center, the Alliance for Great Lakes, other Great Lakes groups said, why are you doing this? You're not allowed to do this. You shouldn't do this. Governor Rick Snyder of Michigan said, I don't support it. Don't do it. Well, they're still trying to decide what to do. This is the old, um, some of you may have seen the Marx Brothers movie, Duck Soup, uh, where <laughs> Groucho Marx runs around saying, whatever it is, I'm against it. When it comes to environmental protection, protecting healthy, clean air, safe drinking water, our natural resources, whatever it is, it seems this administration is against it. I wanted to ask about some of the changes to the Obama administration uh, auto standards and the Environmental Protection Agency announced that they would abandon the long-term fuel economy standards this year for passenger cars. Um, they said they were too high. Uh, there was a really interesting piece in the New York Times recently about the oil companies and the Koch brothers organizations that were driving this this policy. Um, what do you make of the reduction in the auto standards and, and is, is, are there court cases for that? Sure. The clean car standards are designed – they were negotiated during the Obama administration between the auto industry, environmentalists, the states, uh, and the Obama administration. And everybody saw that was a good compromise. It means cars are more efficient. It means we spend less money at the gas pump. We get more miles per gallon, less reliant on foreign oil good for the atmosphere, less carbon pollution. The Trump administration has gone to roll back the standards. We question whether they can do that under the federal law. But what's become interesting here is that a number of states, including California, are saying, we're going to keep our standards in effect. And the auto industry is saying, holy moly, we don't want two standards. We want one consistent national standard. And they're sort of implying that they could live because they agreed to it with the Obama administration standards. Uh, the real culprit here, if you will, is the oil industry. The fact of the matter is if our cars are more energy efficient, more fuel efficient, that means we're at the gas pump less. We buy less oil, and that's not what the oil industry wants. One of the things we're constantly being told is that people want big cars and that people are driving more SUVs than ever. Um, there's cars that are going off the market, mid-sized sedans. People don't want them. Um, people want to protect the environment, but they keep buying these big cars. Well, people are buying a lot of different cars these days. First of all, a lot of people, particularly younger people, are not buying cars at all. They're relying upon ride-sharing services, public transit, bicycles, uh, scooters, and other things to get around. 
Uh, there are more SUVs and larger cars being sold, but we can also have SUVs that are more fuel efficient. So the trick here here is not to just say everything has to be a small car or big cars are bad. Make all the vehicles more fuel efficient. And when you do that, you help to solve the problems. Electric vehicles get us even further with it. I'm talking with Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Center, and we're talking about the year in uh, the environment and regulation during this segment. And I wanted to say something about the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, which is uh, under attack. The, um, the Department of the Interior started to make moves there. Um, there's also been wetland rollbacks recently. There's a huge um, uh, proposal to to change the rules on wetlands. Um, these things don't look good. No, this is an administration that's moving us backwards. On the other hand, we're seeing what the public is saying with regard to this administration in a lot of different places around the country. Look what happened in the last election, and elections do matter. Forty House seats switched from Republican to Democratic, including two suburban House seats in the Chicago area, where Lauren Underwood and Sean Caston won, that have been Republican seats as long as I can remember. In the Caston race, one of the issues he ran on was clean energy and climate change solutions. I mean, in those suburban districts, environmental issues matter, and they're helping provide the margins for some candidates to win. Look what happened in the governor's races in the Midwest. You know, four new Democratic governors, uh, three of which are replacing Republican governors who had very different views. Uh, Governor-elect J.B. Uh, Pritzker here in Illinois, uh, Governor-elect Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Governor-elect Tony Evers in Wisconsin. Uh, Tim Walls in Minnesota replaces a Democratic governor, uh, Dayton. Uh, governor Wolf, Pennsylvania Democrat, re-elected. Um, Mike DeWine, Republican elected in Ohio. When he was in Congress, he co-chaired the Great Lakes Caucus. When those governors get together in the Midwest Governors Association, the Council of Great Lakes Governors, they're bringing very different values to the table when it comes to protecting our environment and natural resources. Most of those were pretty close elections. Tony Evers beat Scott Walker in Wisconsin by less than 30,000 votes. Environmental issues are becoming voting issues. Howard, I was looking for some good news amidst some of this uh, bad news that we're kind of going over here. And I bumped into something that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission did. I have no idea. I'd never heard of the Federal <laughs> Energy Regulatory Commission. I don't know what they do. But apparently the, the Trump administration wanted to have um, some direct subsidies for coal and nuclear facilities. And the president ordered Rick Perry to come up with a plan for that. And he did. And he decided that um, the United States would guarantee financial returns for power plants that can stockpile at least 90 days worth of fuel on site, which in effect would prop up coal and nuclear plants. And this Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that I've never heard of said, no, you cannot prop up coal and nuclear plants with direct subsidies. Um, I, I was very happy to see that something really good happened. All right. I'm going to give you the good news on that and then the what you may think is not so good news. It's the right decision. This is not the time in which we should have the federal government through the taxpayers subsidizing 
otherwise economically uncompetitive coal plants. So who led the charge against it? Certainly groups like ours, the Environmental Law and Policy Center, environmental groups, the clean energy industry strongly opposed it. Who else did? The oil and gas industry. Why is that? Because well, they, they gas, opposed it. Natural gas. Sure. They opposed it, Jerome, because if you subsidize coal and nuclear plants, then the natural gas plants are at a competitive disadvantage. So sometimes, as they say, politics makes strange <laughs> bedfellows. Uh, environmental, public health, clean energy groups opposed the Trump proposal. So did the oil and gas industry. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which regulates wholesale electricity sales around the country, uh, said no. That's a good thing. It is unusual that the president and the administration move forward with a plan that even the fossil fuel industry maybe that was too much. Well, the fossil fuel industry was divided yeah. between the coal side and the oil <laughs> and gas side. But let's just agree that this is a unusual administration in many different ways. Uh, are you worried about any particular lawsuit or challenge that um, that may not do the trick? I mean, we've been, I've been trotting out all these places, the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, the wetlands, the um, the grouse, the sage-grouse territory, all these things are up for grabs or in the courts. Is there, is, should we be worried about one in particular? You know, I think we should worry most about the stuff that's irreversible. There are some things, such as regulations involving particulates that affect public health, that if the administration doesn't act for a year or two, that hurts people, okay? The status quo is not good when it comes to our public health. But ultimately, we can take steps in the states or a new administration can step up and we can try to move forward. On the other hand, when you drill for oil in certain places, whether you're drilling for oil in the Arctic or whether you have an oil spill in the Straits of Mackinac from the Enbridge pipeline, that's irreversible. So there are certain things that delay is bad when it comes to protecting public health and the environment. Uh, on the other hand, there are certain things it's very hard to put, if you will, the genie back in the bottle, the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you open up an area for drilling and you actually start drilling there, once you have a pipeline spill in the Great Lakes, uh, it's hard to put the uh, toothpaste back in the tube. I'm talking with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center, and we're doing a little review of the year in the environment, and we are going to focus on the Great Lakes. In our next segment, we'll talk with Dan Egan. He's a Great Lakes reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's author of the book, Death and Life of the Great Lakes, and we'll talk about uh, Enbridge and Line 5 a little more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the year in environmental news with Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Center. And in this section, we're going to focus on the Great Lakes. And specifically, we I wanted to start with um, this Line 5 in Enbridge. You were talking about the um, pipeline underneath the Great Lakes up there near Mackinac Island. Uh, for people who have never heard of this before, Howard, uh, what's going on there? Uh, the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline carries oil, and it goes from the west across through the Straits of Mackinac, and then it goes over to Sarnia, Ontario. Um, if everybody knows where the Mackinac Bridge is, I mean, it's the long bridge that connects uh, the, upper, the lower peninsula of Michigan uh, up to the upper peninsula of Michigan. And going underneath that bridge for about four miles is the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline. It rests on the bottom of the lake. It's old. It's been in operation for over 60 years. It's had some leaks. Uh, an anchor struck it and created a lot of problems. And this is a place where, frankly, if there were an oil spill, you really can't think of a worse place for this to happen. Really hard to clean up if it's at all possible. If it happens in the winter, then it's frozen over in the lake and you don't have any way of cleaning it up. And a lot of scientists have done analysis about the water flows and where it would go. It would contaminate the lakes and the water supply for a long way around. The U.S. Coast Guard commandant testified before Congress that the Coast Guard isn't prepared. His word was they're not semper paratus to clean this up. This is a big deal, high-profile issue in Michigan. Most of the public opposes it. A lot of businesses in the area that rely on tourism oppose it. Uh, Governor Rick Snyder uh, has tried to jam it through, and he's pushed it through the legislature in the last couple of days. And also with us is Dan Egan, Great Lakes reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's the author of the book, Death and Life of the Great Lakes. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know you've been following this closely, and I wonder if you could t- kind of talk about what changed over the last year, because well, when we talked with you about a year ago uh, about this, it seemed like Everybody, including Rick Snyder, um, was skeptical about the proposals that were coming out of Enbridge and and the the ideas for a new pipeline. And now here we are with the most complex, expensive pipeline being approved and and going down just just yesterday. Um, Can you kind of walk me through that? Because I don't even get that. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know exactly what what's going on behind the scenes, but I think everybody in in Michigan government was pretty skittish about the idea of these. I think they're sixty five year old pipes just lying exposed on the lake bed. I mean, nobody knows exactly what their design life is, but anything humans build breaks eventually, even a bowling ball. So it, its days are numbered one way or the other. Now, I, I, saw, I saw a video um, that, who was it, the National Wildlife Federation right, made? Right, They sent scuba divers in there because who, you know, nobody looks at a pipeline, but, and nobody thinks about what it would be doing underwater, but it actually sways underneath the water, and you can see it bobbing back and forth, and it's 65 it's, years old. You, you, it, it, yeah, uh, like, uh, that changed my a whole picture of the thing. Yeah, you know, for decades it was out of sight and out of mind, and then and then Enbridge, the pipeline owner, uh, had a, a a horrible rupture on on another line in the Lower Peninsula, and that ended up being the world's worst inland oil spill, and it unleashed I don't know a million gallons or so of this uh, really heavy crude into the Kalamazoo River, 
it was a billion dollar cleanup. And so people started looking like, hey, where else are there pipes? And a lot of people were flabbergasted to learn that these these aged pipes were still humming along on the bottom of uh, the Straits of Mackinac. And, and so I think what's changed now is, you know, it, it seems kind of... I guess, comforting into some people's minds, particularly outgoing Governor Snyder's, that, you know, if these pipes are put under the under the bedrock, then if there's a leak, they're not going to be unleashed into, you know, what is arguably the most iconic spot in all of the Great Lakes. It's not just picturesque, but as Howard was mentioning, it's the worst place in the Great Lakes for an oil spill because the currents are constantly changing. Some days they're going east, some days they're going west, some days they go north. Uh, they've done modeling and and they've they've predicted that you know shoreline almost as far west as Wisconsin could be exposed to a slick if these pipes rupture. So you know, kind of a an intuitive uh, solution would be to okay, let's take it out of the lake and put it under the lake. I mean, it, it's very common for pipelines to go under rivers and small smaller uh, bodies of water, but I don't think anything like this has ever been attempted. I don't think they've even begun to do any of the engineering. To figure out, you know, what it'll take and, and what it'll cost. These things always end up costing more than people predict. And one of the big criticisms is that, you know, they're looking at 10 years out. Well, maybe that's the design life of this. And it's actually two twin pipelines on the bottom of the lake. Um, maybe, you know, maybe they can get 10 more years out of these pipes and then they're good uh, to, to pull them out. And if they were to pull them out, that... <laughs> Well, there's a couple of questions there. A is nobody knows exactly where this oil is going. A, a, a certain percent of it is not staying in the United States. It's going, it's coming from Canada, you know, from out west in Alberta, and it's going back into Canada at Sarnia. And, and from there, it can get onto the world market. So a lot of people are concerned that the, you know, Great Lakes states are being asked to take this environmental risk for a very small economic uh, benefit. Were they to plug these pipes and were it decided that the oil still needed to keep flowing, well, then Wisconsin's got a problem, likely, because that oil, and it's some 500,000 barrels a day, would be coming straight across all the, the length of the of the Badger State. And that would involve crossing probably 60 rivers and I don't know how many miles of wetlands. And we already have, per, I think it's around 2 million barrels a day coming through Wisconsin and Enbridge is is expected to be adding more um, in the coming year. So it's a sticky issue. I'm talking with Dan Egan. He's Great Lakes reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's author of the book Death and Life of the Great Lakes. And Howard Lerner is here from the Environmental Law Policy Center. Um, why did How did this thing get through the legislature like it did? Um, and the governor signed off on it. There's a new governor coming in. This almost seems like lame duck action that took place here at the end. Uh, is there? How do you reverse something like this? If you wanted to stop the pipeline, what do you do? Well, that's exactly what it was. A political deal got cut between outgoing Republican Governor Rick Snyder, the Republican-led Michigan legislature, and Enbridge. And what they tried to do was agree on a tunnel, a new tunnel that would be built five to ten years from now that would go underneath the lake bed bottom would put the tunnel around the oil pipeline and they've said that would be a safe thing to do and the public is going to sort of ensure uh, the safety of that and the money for it with guarantee it with Enbridge. They've created a new commission to approve it. The question is who will absorb what risk and so forth. 
But what happened here was a hurry-up political deal that got cut between Enbridge and the Republican leadership because incoming Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer, incoming Attorney General and Democrat Dana Nessel said, this is an accident waiting to happen. We're going to do something about it. Uh, and that's why you had the rush to judgment that Dan was referring to and you just asked about. Um, Enbridge has a bad history in Michigan. As Dan mentioned, the Kalamazoo River oil spill, that's the worst on land, uh, I think, in American history. Billion dollars to clean up, took several years to do it. Uh, Enbridge's street cred, if you will, is not very good in Michigan. This is a problem. It's exactly the wrong place to have an oil pipeline you know, in the Great Lakes when it comes to protecting the Great Lakes. Um, Dan, Rick Snyder, he's the guy who brought the world the Flint water crisis. And then he, he runs through and does this move. Um, I don't know what to, you know, what to say. This is the last guy I would want making a call on this. Uh, do you think that the new governor has a shot at, at reversing it? Yeah, I don't know what the mechanism would be, but I do know that the you know public uh, opposition to to this pipeline is overwhelming. It's not unanimous, but it is overwhelming, and it's not just localized. It's not in far northern, lower Michigan, and in in the Upper Peninsula. It's all across Michigan, and you know the outgoing attorney general did. I think he did a, a pretty good job of riding Enbridge over the last five years and forcing them to release you know documents relating to you know, pipeline inspections and, and, you know, estimates as to the likelihood of an oil spill on these lines, which is remarkably high. I'm going from memory here, but I think when they came out with a, a, a state-ordered report, Enbridge came out with a report a year ago or so, they estimated that there was a 1 in 60 chance of these one of these or both of these pipelines rupturing in the next, I think it was 35 years or so. And the likely... Um, means of rupture was an anchor dropping from a freighter sailing sailing above and you know you think you know how that's crazy well an anchor hit the pipeline i think it was last summer and it didn't it didn't cause uh, oil to be released but it, it nicked the outer coating and it could have very easily triggered uh you know a spill and when you think about a one in 60 chance that's like 35 years is somebody's career. And so if, if you were approached and said, hey, you can get a job, say, sailing on this boat for, for you know, 35 years, you can have a career on this boat, but it has a one in 60 chance of, of sinking during your career, you'd find another boat. And, and that's what Michigan's essentially got to do. And I, it, it's not just a Michigan issue. It's a Wisconsin issue. It's an Illinois issue. It's an, uh, an Ontario issue. It's an Ohio issue. That water's going to flow south down into uh, – that any contaminated water is going to make its way, you know, as far as the uh, St. Lawrence River flows. So this isn't going away. I don't know exactly what tools the incoming governor has other than, you know, a public that is, is getting pretty fed up with this. Dan Egan is Great Lakes reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Howard Lerner is with the Environmental Law Policy Center. We're doing a year in environmental news today on Worldview with Howard. And I wanted to get in a couple other Great Lakes issues and things that happened in the Great Lakes this year. Um, you had a pretty big win with algae blooms this year on, in Lake Erie, Howard. Well, go back a couple of years. Toxic algae blooms, blue-green algae blooms in western Lake Erie, contaminated the water. Half a million people were without safe drinking water for 72 hours in the Toledo area. The National Guard had to truck in water. 
those algae blooms keep popping up. And the reason is that manure and fertilizers that carry phosphorus run off into the Maumee River Basin, get into Maumee Bay, the shallow water bay of Lake Erie, is contaminated by algae blooms, threatens the safe drinking water for people, harms the fisheries, and makes it a lousy place in terms of outdoor recreation and a place that people like a whole lot. The state of Ohio said, Western Lake Erie is not impaired by pollution. And the U.S. EPA approved that finding. We went to a federal district court in the Northern District of Ohio and said, that is arbitrary and capricious. We won. This is a precedental ruling in Western Lake Erie, but it's also relevant to places like Green Bay, Wisconsin, Sheboygan, Saginaw Bay, where algae blooms are beginning to occur and be a real serious problem in terms of safe drinking water supply for people. So from a public interest attorney standpoint, we're darn proud. This was a big win. It's a precedent that can make a difference in terms of cleaning up the Great Lakes, but it's a lawsuit we never should have had to bring. I mean, if the EPA had been doing its job, it would have said to Ohio, come on, get serious. This is a place where the lakes are impaired by pollution. Clean it up. Get moving. Um, and I know that, um, Dan Egan, there was an interesting situation with the Foxconn plant that's gone. That's going in in uh, southeastern Wisconsin there, the gigantic Taiwanese uh, tech manufacturers coming in, and they need a lot of water to do business. And they did something, that they kind of cut a deal that broke with the Great Lakes Compact. Um, what happened there? Well, there's debate about whether it is broken with the Great Lakes Compact or not. But it is it is an important um, issue because the, the compact, which was approved about a decade ago, is designed to prevent large-scale water diversions out of the Great Lakes Basin. And it allows for some very specific exemptions for communities that are just beyond that basin line. And that basin is defined as the the, the landmass that collects the water that flows into the Great Lakes. And if you're on the other side of it, in some cases it's just a little hill here in southeastern Wisconsin. You don't even really notice it, but it's it's hydrologically as important as the Rocky Mountains because a drop of water that falls on the west side of it goes to the Gulf of Mexico. A drop of water that flows inside of it goes into the Great Lakes. So if you pull Great Lakes water over this line, it doesn't come back to the lakes. And it's not the concern about what one company or one city can do to the lakes. It's the idea that, you know, of a thousand straws, you you let one city uh, take the water. How do you say no to the next? So under the terms of the compact, there has been, um, they call it a water diversion, um, granted to a suburb up here in Milwaukee. And, and now comes Foxconn, which isn't a city, even though it's about the size of a city. And it happens to, curiously enough, straddle this, this basin dividing line. And this was anticipated to a degree by the people who, who wrote this Great Lakes Compact, which was approved by all eight Great Lakes states and by Congress and signed by President Bush back in 2008. Um, they, they, they straddled, they built, they're building this campus, so it straddles, straddles the basin dividing line. And, and this compact calls for this to be able to happen, provided that it, the water goes primarily to residential users. And the argument is Foxconn isn't a resident, it's a company. And so, so there's, there's a lot of um, legal 
challenges that are being pondered. There's already been, I, I believe, something filed under the terms of the compact. It hasn't gone to the point of a lawsuit yet. But, but the, there's a challenge. And the worry is if you say yes to, to, to Foxconn and you allow this industrial use of water beyond the Great Lakes Basin dividing line, how do you say no to the next person? So, you know, it's really interesting. You were talking about water quality and we're talking about water quantity. And we're going to be talking about both of these things for a long time to come. Howard, has the Great Lakes actually done all right here? You mentioned the uh, the Great Lakes Initiative surviving the Trump administration. Uh, is Are we still pr- on pretty solid footing here? You know, the Great Lakes are getting better in terms of aquatic health. The threats are big. I mean, Dan's been describing the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline problem. An oil spill there would be tragic. Certainly, we're dealing with pressures of Asian carp and other invasives getting into the Great Lakes. But for those of us who live in Chicago, where we live, we work, we play in the Great Lakes. And if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, the Clean Water Act has been working. The Great Lakes are getting cleaner and better. We got a long way to go. We have challenges with harmful algae blooms. The Trump administration three times has tried to zero out the funding for the successful Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Three times we've won in Congress, bipartisan Republicans and Democrats saying, fully funded, $300 million, put that money back in, we've prevailed. But again, that's a battle we shouldn't have to fight. You know, the Great Lakes are where we live, where we work, and where we play. People are supportive of it. It's overwhelming support. This is one where we ought to have a federal administration working with the governors in the Great Lakes states to say, how can we really up our game here, deal with some of the problems, hold off the threats, and make the Great Lakes truly great again, to uh, borrow a phrase. Howard Learners with the Environmental Law Policy Center. Dan Egan is Great Lakes reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's author of Death and Life in the, of the Great Lakes. Thanks a lot for joining us, Dan. Good talking with you. And Howard, we'll be back with you in a moment, and we'll talk about climate change. You're on. Thanks I'm a lot. Dur- I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. We're talking about the year in environmental news with Howard Lerner of the Environmental Law Policy Center. And we are going to shift gears in this last segment and talk about climate change. And with us is Lou Leonard. He is the Senior Vice President for Climate Change and Energy at the World Wildlife Fund. Thanks a lot for joining us, Lou. Thanks for having me. You know, you were just back from Poland and the UN Climate Summit at Katowice, which seemed to embody the the kind of strange dichotomy that's going on now. There were um, a coal mining band playing outside, and the Polish are are kind of a part of the 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 fossil fuel nexus of the United States and Saudi Arabia and Russia and Poland who want to want to do fossil fuels. And at the same time, there seemed to be progress and people managed to get done what they needed to do on the roadmap. Um, what, was, what was your takeaway from the summit? Well, my, my first takeaway was this is my, fir- my third um, of these cops uh, in Poland, and I think I deserve 
some sort of a scout uh, merit badge uh, for that. Um, but but I think um, I think really the top line um, uh, sort of takeaway that I have is that the Paris Agreement um, was able to withstand the storms of kind of the geopolitics that we see right now playing out around the world. You know, even with nationalism and isolationism on the rise, and we hear a lot about it, and, and those things are certainly real, um, that countries still want to work together, including through the Paris Agreement, to to get after this um, get after this problem. And I think that's a really good thing, because as you said, to some degree, the deck was stacked against us um, with this meeting being in Poland, being hosted by the Polish government, and, you know, and in these processes, the the presidency, as we call it, the the host government has a lot of power in um, you know in kind of organizing the talks and and determining whether we get to the finish line. So I think uh, under those conditions, I think we did we did quite well. Uh, everybody saw all the reports that came out this towards the end of the year. The United Nations gives us twelve years to avert serious damage. The National Climate Assessment talked about uh, how much this whole thing was going to cost the United States of America. That made a big impact. And even towards the end of the year, there was this uh, report from the Global Carbon Project that mentioned that, oh, by the way, we are still using more carbon than ever before. We had an increase of 2.7% in 2018. Um, is th- what we've done so far is not working, Howard. We do not have a, um, a, a game plan that is bringing down the, the carbon usage. Well, we know what to do that can work. What we're not doing is enough of it. The global scientific community, as you point out, is telling all of us we must take stronger action now to reduce carbon pollution in order to head off climate change disaster. That's our climate reality. The status quo is not good enough. What we need to do is accelerate renewable energies in the United States and around the world. We need to accelerate energy efficiency, which is the best, the fastest, the cheapest uh, climate change solution. We need to move to more transportation efficiency, public transit, walking, biking, efficient cars and trucks and rail. I mean, we need to step on the gas uh, Uh, pun intended, by using less gas. But the fact of the matter is, we know what the solutions are here. It's having the political and the policy will to take the necessary actions to get it moving and get it moving faster. The scientific community is saying to us, we don't have that much time. So here's how the United States can lead. We know what the policies are. We know what we need to do with accelerating renewable energy technologies. But carbon pollution is a global problem. The fact of the matter is it doesn't matter whether CO2 comes from an industrial plant in Indiana or Indonesia. We need to transfer the technologies that are developed in the West and make sure they're available to the developing countries. We need to make sure that we're not talking about just reducing coal use here in the United States, but it gets exported to Indonesia where it gets burned. This is a global problem that needs global solutions, and that involves all of us working together. We can't work together very well when the United States is one of the very few countries that's stepping back from the Paris Accord. We need to step up and lead, and that's not what the administration is doing. We need to have that coming from the Midwest governors, and we need that to come from our federal government. Um, 
How do you see this, um, Lou, when you see all these countries come together at the U.N. conference? There are countries that go back and forth on whether they're going to do good on climate. I mean, Australia has been back and forth. A lot of countries uh, bob and weave on this. Is that can, can we accept that as part of the landscape? I, I think we should not accept the fact, as Howard said, that we're not moving fast enough. Um, I think we do need to recognize that that the the winds of politics change over time and you know and as much as we would like that not to be the case it is i think that's why the system that has been developed under the paris agreement um allows for um you know it doesn't rely on just one or two countries to lead it provides the opportunity for leadership from around the world and i think that's what we need to sort of smooth out the challenges when there's a down, you know, what I would consider a downturn in the climate politics. And in one place, we need others to step in. And I think that one of the, I think the turning point actually in the, in the meetings in Poland was when a group of countries that called itself the High Ambition Coalition stepped up on the Wednesday before, so two days before this, uh, before the meeting finished, and they said, um, the conversations we're having right now about the science reports and how we're going to respond to them are, um, are, are unacceptable, um, and we, this group of countries, was about uh, 50 countries, said um, we need a new approach, and we need countries to come out of Poland and agree to go home and strengthen their national climate commitments, and then bring those back to the table. Uh, and the Secretary General of the United Nations stepped in um, uh, during the talks. He was there twice, uh, and said that he's going to host a head of state meeting in September to try to bring uh, all countries around to this idea that. We need to, um, you know, rapidly increase um, the ambition of what countries are doing at home. So I think that was actually the biggest outcome of the talks, and it's a, it, you know, and it shows that, you know, with this problem, as Howard said, it's a global problem. Um, this global framework that we have under the Paris Agreement allows for the leadership to come from different places when it's needed, um, uh, and we need to take advantage of that. In in Poland, it was the small island states again, that together with Europe and a handful of countries from. Um, uh, from Latin America plus Canada and New Zealand kind of stepped in and said, um, we're going to take the reins now. We're going to say, um, you know, what we're doing isn't fast enough. We need to go faster, uh, and we're going to kind of lead us, lead us there together with the Secretary General. So I think that's what we need. We need to be able to find leadership where it can be found in a particular moment because uh, we can't wait for, um, you know, a certain set of countries to always be there ready to lead the charge. We're talking with Lou Leonard from the World Wildlife Fund and Howard Lerner from the Environmental Law Policy Center. We're talking about climate change and the year in climate change. I think, you know, with all the reports that came out, the U.N. reports, the National Climate Assessment, and so many actual natural disasters that people witnessed uh, in recent years from the wildfires, from the hurricanes, it's so clear that the the tides are rising, that poles are melting. It's... um, couldn't be more in people's faces. And um, there's been some new polling released uh, by the Yale Program on Climate Change uh, Communication, and it shows that 81% of respondents across the political spectrum support um, a plan to combat climate change by weaning the U.S. off fossil fuels. Um, The whole idea of this new Green Deal that has been floating around by some of the new members of Congress is – uh, something that has wide public support, and when you put it into uh, terms that are not 
partisan. Uh, it has 81% of people would like to see something go on. Well, we're beginning to see this become a voting issue. You know, think about it for a minute. You know, what do we want to say to our kids and grandkids as there is more flooding, hurricanes, wildfires, when they say to us, why didn't you do more to stop this from happening? You know, this is real. This is climate reality. So you take a district like the 6th Congressional District outside of Chicago where Sean Caston is now the representative-elect. That's a district that was Peter Roskam's congressional district before then Henry Hyde, longstanding suburban Republican district. Sean Caston ran, and one of his key issues was climate change and clean energy, and he won by 6.5%. So what we're seeing is in a lot of the swing areas of our country, um, it used to be candidates on the Democratic side would sort of run away and not want to talk about climate change. Uh, Sean Caston spoke explicitly on it, ran ads on it. And I think what we're going to see in the swing Midwestern states is more and more candidates on both sides of the aisle, Democrats running first and Republicans saying, we can't duck this, we can't dodge this anymore. The public wants, as you're talking about, Jerome, you know, strong action on climate change solutions, and it's just not viable uh, for a lot of the folks to keep their heads in the sand and say this isn't happening because people are seeing the reality. When they see the wildfires, when they see the hurricanes, it's not th theoretical anymore. You know, that is the new climate reality, and we darn well better take some actions now, not later, to begin reversing that course. Um, Lou, do you have some thoughts on uh, the Green Global Plan and that kind of the shift in public thinking? Well, I think I think it's a it's a great indication that um, while climate change can often seem very and it is actually very polarizing in Washington, um, it's not really um, that way uh, throughout America. And I, and I think one indicator and a really strong one is the poll that you referred to. I think another is um, how we've seen U.S. businesses and um, state and local government leaders and universities and others step into the leadership breach when the president um, announced that the U.S. would begin the process of pulling itself out of the Paris Agreement. The We Are Still In movement launched three days later. It now has over 3,600 corporate CEOs, university presidents, mayors, governors um, uh, that represent over half of the U.S. population, ha over half of the U.S. economy, $9.4 trillion of economic activity. And that group was uh, showed up in Poland um, and actually um, uh, met with other governments um, and sent the message that, you know, the U.S. is still moving forward on climate action, kind of regardless of what you see in Washington. I do think that ultimately we need a federal um, solution. So, um, uh, you know, at least a federal contribution to this. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, seeing climate and energy through the Green New Deal um, really rise um, into the conversation since the election has been critical. And I think it's been driven, you know, I think it's very reasonable to say uh, it's been driven very strongly by the youth um, movement in the United States. Um, we've seen that globally, too. At the COP, we saw one of the most stirring speeches was by a 15-year-old um, uh, woman from uh, Sweden called Greta Thunberg, um, and she put everybody to shame with her straight talk. So I think we're seeing the politics change. The last thing I would say about that that's also 
encouraging on the bipartisan side is since the election in November, um, we've seen two bipartisan um, carbon uh, fee uh, and dividend bills um, introduced um, uh, during the the lame duck session, uh, one in the House um, by uh, 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 Representative Fitzpatrick was the Republican from suburban Pennsylvania who survived um, in one of those districts that Howard was talking <coughs> about that, that they didn't survive in and often. Uh, and then you just saw one yesterday um, by outgoing um, Senator Flake and Senator Coons. So those bills aren't going to pass. So it's not that 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 that, that you know is uh, an indication that we're on the verge of federal policy, but it is an indication that the politics are changing, and you're seeing uh, more willingness for bipartisan <clears throat> solutions. Howard Lerner. So here's the good news, and I'll be positive about it. Solar energy plus storage is a game changer for the market, and solar energy is now beginning to rapidly accelerate in Illinois. The price for solar panels has dropped over the past decade from about four dollars per watt down to less than forty cents a watt. Battery storage packs have dropped by about 85%. We are in the midst of a wind power boom in the Midwest, and we're in the midst of solar rapidly accelerating. And everything we use is more energy efficient. LED lighting, refrigerators, air conditioning, and so forth. So on the clean energy side, the market is beginning to transition. We have a long way to go, but the goal of having 100% renewables and more energy efficiency over the next 20 years is one that is achievable. Maybe not at 100%, but instead of going from the 5 to 10% today, if we get that up to 90% or so, which can be done in the next 20 years, that can help drive a lot of climate change solutions. Smart policies drive clean energy technologies, and the technologies we develop and use here can be transferred and exported around the world to help solve problems. That's some good news, and that's a change that's happening pretty rapidly here. Howard Lerner is the executive director at the Environmental Law Policy Center here in Chicago. Thanks for joining us and You're talking about welcome. the Environmental Year in Review. And Lou Leonard is senior vice president for climate change and energy at the World Wildlife Fund. Thanks a lot for joining us and telling us about what happened at the recent UN conference. Lou Leonard, thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will talk with our film contributor, Milos Stalik. As we do on Fridays, we will talk about the new film Vice, about uh, Dick Cheney and the kind of miraculous performance in the lead role. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.